evening. It is good to be together on the Lord's Day for our Sunday evening service. I do see that there are several who were gone who are back with us, and we are thankful for that. We've got a lot of people who are out sick right now. There's something going around. We want to remember them in our prayers. My wife is one of them. She's had a fever for several days and hacking and coughing, and we appreciate those who have checked on us and uh, offered to bring us food and things like that. Uh, that is very considerate. We're going to do questions and answers tonight. I've got some great questions, and I'm going to try to cover 10 or 11. I'll try to watch the time. I did have someone ask the question, why don't you ever preach on gluttony? And the answer is, because I don't want to get fired. <laughs> no, you know, I was actually thinking about that question, and I thought about what I had for dinner last night, and I thought, I had steak and fudge for dinner, and I had a vegetable, I had sweet potato pie, so that... Uh, I thought that wasn't good, but you got to think that uh, Sherry makes the best fudge you have ever had. So if you come over, we'll give you some of that. 10 or 11 questions tonight. Here is the first question. Where is the Ark of the Covenant today? The short answer to this question is we don't know. The Bible does not say what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. There are various stories and traditions about this. One very famous account says that... When the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, she stayed and actually she got pregnant by Solomon. And that when she went home, on the way home, she had this child that belonged to Solomon. Eventually this child comes back and stays with Solomon for a period of time. And when he leaves, he, unbeknownst to Solomon, takes the Ark of the Covenant with him. Now, this is a very, very popular story or tradition, and it's a major part of Ethiopia's history now. Ethiopia's medieval kings, who were called the Solomonic dynasty after Solomon, they claimed that they had a direct descent from King Solomon. And this dynasty ruled until 1974, not that long ago. In addition to the Ethiopian government, the country's, Ethiopia's largest religious denomination, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, they also assert that this is true. According to church leaders, the Ark of the Covenant has for centuries been closely guarded in the Church of St. Mary of Zion. But they say that not even their high priest is allowed to enter the resting chamber. It has a sole custodian. He is a virgin. He is a monk. He can never leave the sacred grounds until his death. He guards the Ark of the Covenant. So this is one tradition. It is a story that is told. Biblically speaking, when Babylon attacked Jerusalem in the 6th century, about 600 years before the birth of Christ, the Ark of the Covenant disappears from history and it disappears from the biblical record. In the thousands of years since that time, there has been no mention of it that is credible. If you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark that came out in the 70s and they had several sequels, it was about that, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. There is a, another tradition that says that when the Babylonians came, that the prophet Jeremiah took the Ark and he hid it in the catacombs beneath the temple and the Babylonians were not able to get a hold of it and it stayed there. And... They say that um, after they returned from the captivity, 
We don't know what happened. What do we know biblically about the Ark of the Covenant? What we know is when the Babylonians came, it appeared to be there. And after they returned, it was not there. And it is never mentioned again. In the New Testament, when Rome comes and attacks Jerusalem, General Pompey is supposed to have entered the Holy of Holies, and he came out and said, I don't know what the big deal is about this place. It's nothing but an empty room. And so where is the Ark of the Covenant? Again, the answer is the Bible doesn't say. My guess would be that it was taken during the Babylonian raid. I remember that in Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar, after he was having his feast, he commanded that the golden vessels and the silver vessels be brought, that according to Daniel chapter 5 and verse 2, his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. So he says, when Babylon raided Jerusalem, they took the gold vessels, they took the silver vessels, and they took them back to Babylon. Did they get the Ark of the Covenant also? That would be my guess. But the answer is, nobody knows. Question number two. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee? And they cite some verses here, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, 2 Corinthians 1, 22 and 5, 5. Are we sealed with the Holy Spirit today, and is He our guarantee today? So really there are three questions. Number one, what does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Are we sealed with the Holy Spirit today, and is He our guarantee today? I was trying to think, how can I make this uh, answer as simple as possible? What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? The word sealed means certified. Anytime you read about the Holy Spirit sealing, confirming, uh, certifying, being a guarantee, it always is speaking of the Holy Spirit as proof of something. All of those words speak to the Holy Spirit as proof. In the first century, the Lord gave the Holy Spirit to prove that the message was from God, to reveal the New Testament and to prove it. If you keep that in mind, every time you run across a word like seal or guarantee uh, or something like that, you'll understand it, it relates to the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean when he says to the Ephesians that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit? That Greek word for sealed means certified. At that time, God gave miracles through the Holy Spirit to prove that the Christian message, the Christian system was legitimate. That's what it means. The sealing of the Holy Spirit was proof. It was a guarantee from God that what they were doing and what they were a part of is legitimate. That's why the next verse, Ephesians 1.14, says, He is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's a guarantee. It's a proof. It's something that you can see. It's not just something in our hearts that you just have to take his word for it. This is proof. It's a guarantee. Let me read you the first reference here. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Christ you also trusted. After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Let me, allow me to reword this, if you will. You have heard the word of truth, that is the gospel, and you believed it. The Holy Spirit certified it, that is, he proved it, he validated it. He said, this is the truth. How? 
through miracles. I want you to think about that. This is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Do you remember when we read about the founding of the church in Ephesus? If you go back to Acts chapter 19, this is what the Bible tells us about the church in Ephesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. What does that mean? They heard the word, they believed it, they were baptized, Paul laid the Holy Spirit upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. What does that mean? They had the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as proof that what they had done was legitimate and it was from God. I could give a lot of passages, but that is the short answer to the question. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? When he wrote it to the Ephesians, they had miraculous proof, confirmation that the message was from God. In fact, I will read you one verse here. Mark 16, 20, when Jesus first sent out his disciples, this is what the Bible says, and they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. That is, they went out, they preached the word, they baptized people, and they confirmed it. They gave a guarantee, a proof, a certification. How? Through miracles. That was what the Holy Spirit did in the first century. So are we sealed with the Holy Spirit today? No, not like they were. They were sealed miraculously. The Word was sealed miraculously. Is He our guarantee today? No, not in the same way that He was for them. Because for them, it was miraculous. When He said, wrote Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 and said, You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul laid his hands on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Why? Because they had received the Holy Spirit. All right, next question. Explain how many of each kind of animal Noah took with him on the ark. I think if you ask most people this question, what do you think they would say? How many type of animal, of each animal, did Moses take on the ark? I think people would say, well, two. You know, they went into the ark two by two. And Genesis 6, 19 says, And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. To keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female. It seems, however, that fewer people are aware of the next chapter. Genesis 7 and verse 2 says, You shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and his female, Two of each of the animals that are clean, a male and his female. Also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. So how many of each type of animal did he take? This actually gets confusing because there's some ambiguity in the Greek words here. And so translators kind of argue about what it means. The American Standard says that Noah took them seven by seven. The King James says, by sevens. You say, I don't get the difference. What it amounts to is this. Did he take seven of each unclean animal, or did he take seven pairs of unclean animal, a male and a female? The translators are split about what the Greek means. The New King James and the NIV say seven, just a total of seven, the RSV, the New English, the ESV say seven pairs. In truth, does it really matter? It doesn't really matter to us today 
how many he took. The point is this. He took two of every unclean animal, and he took either seven total of the clean or seven pairs of the clean for the purpose of offering sacrifices to God. And which one it is, um, you can dispute the Hebrew because I don't know it well enough to give you a good answer. All right, question number four. We all, I always have marriage and divorce questions. Jane and John Doe have been married for years. John had an affair committing adultery. Jane, though hurt, decided to make their marriage work. She forgave him, and the marriage continued for several years. Other troubles arise. Jane decides to leave Joe because she no longer loves him. He's changed. She files for a divorce. After a short time after the divorce is final, Jane begins dating, saying that she has a right to remarry because Joe broke their marriage vows. Is it a scriptural right since years have passed since the sexual unfaithfulness and Jane had forgiven and stayed with Joe as a wife, does she have a right to remarry? No, Jane cannot put him away for fornication at this point. She does not have the right to claim that she put, is putting him away for adultery because she's actually putting him away because she no longer loves him, because he's changed, because of all of these other reasons. What she is doing is she's saying, I don't want to be with him anymore. I want to end this marriage. And, oh, yeah, eight years ago he committed adultery. And so I'm going to get out of this marriage now. She's trying to justify her choice. She cannot put him away scripturally and remarry. If she had said this a week after he committed adultery or a month after he committed adultery and she said, look, I can't do this. I'm going to put him away for adultery. I could believe it is for adultery. After years have passed, and then she's got a multitude of other reasons, and then she says, oh yeah, he did this, um, I don't buy it. She's not really putting him away for fornication or adultery, and that's what the Bible requires in Matthew 19.9. Question number five, what did Jesus mean when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Of course, Jesus said this when he was hanging on the cross. Luke 23 and verse 34, Luke is the only gospel writer who uh, records these words. This question was asked to me verbally, and the person who asked it, I don't even remember who asked it now, but the person said, surely the people who killed Jesus knew what they were doing. Surely they knew. Why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them? They know not what they do. I think you have a mixture of people here. You've got some who knew and some who did not know. John chapter 12 and verse 42 says, nevertheless, amongst the chief rulers, many also believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be thrown out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The Bible says they believed on Jesus. They knew he was the Messiah. They believed it, but they wouldn't go along with it because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Did they know? Yeah, they knew. But in Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, after the church had already begun, after the day of Pentecost, Peter, by inspiration, says that they crucified the Lord in ignorance. What does that mean? Some people knew, some people did not know. I've even wondered when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Who does he have in mind? I thought about the Roman soldiers. They didn't know what they were doing. 
This is the one thing that I know for sure. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They were not, however, forgiven at that point in time. They were not forgiven until after they repented and they were baptized. How do I know that? Because when you get to Acts chapter 2, Peter says to them, you crucified the Son of God. And they said, men and brethren, what do we do? What do we do about this? How do we fix it? And Peter said, he didn't say, Jesus already forgave you, don't worry about it. You did it in ignorance, it's not a problem. He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. What this shows is even when they were crucifying Jesus, he was ready to forgive. He had a willing spirit that was ready to forgive. And that's the spirit that all of us should have, that we are eager and willing to forgive even when someone is wronging us. Number six, is the international churches of Christ affiliated with the church of Christ or the churches of Christ? This is actually very interesting. The group that calls itself the International Church of Christ is a split that took place from the Lord's Church uh, several years ago. In 1993, in fact, before that, going back to the 60s and 70s, there was a group that was making some changes. They were starting to grow, and in 1993, they officially broke off from the Lord's Church. They took on a new name, and they called themselves the International Church of Christ. Today, they have about 700 congregations in 150 countries. They go back to the 1960s, and they started with a man named Chuck Lucas. He was the preacher at the 14th Street Church of Christ in Gainesville, Florida. Later, that church changed its name to the Crossroads Church of Christ. Maybe you remember, those of you who are a few years older, you might remember the Crossroads movement. They were really big into campus ministries. And when this church in Gainesville, Florida first started, they started at the University of Florida, and they grew from about 30 members to 37,000 members in the first 12 years. They were part of something that they called the discipling movement. It was big in the 1970s. They were extremely evangelistic. They used two tactics that were uh, effective for them. One was called soul talks, and the other was called prayer partners. Soul Talks is where they would go into the student's dorm room or their residence, and they would, um, they would have one person that would oversee the group, and they were the delegated authority for that particular group of people. The prayer partner was uh, a practice in which they would pair a new Christian with an older Christian, and they would say, basically, he's going to be your overseer. You're going to answer to him. You'll, you'll confess to him. He is your prayer partner. Sherry's dad, when he first moved to Charleston in the 80s, when Sherry and I first started dating, the church at North Charleston where we attended, we were having a problem with the Crossroads movement because we had three colleges in downtown Charleston. We had the Medical University, College of Charleston, and the Citadel. And so they had come into that area, they had set up a campus ministry, and they were trying to get a foothold. And so to offset it, North Charleston said, we're going to start a campus ministry, and they brought Sherry's dad to run it, and they kept him there for a number of years until it kind of died out, and then they, they let it go. Anyway, one of the early converts of the Crossroads movement was a man named Kip McKean, and he eventually became the leader of this movement. 
He started out as a campus minister. Pretty soon, this was the fastest growing. His ministry was the fastest growing in the United States. He moved to Massachusetts, and he started working with the congregation. They soon became known as the Boston Church. So if you hear someone talking about the International Church of Christ, sometimes it's referred to as the Boston Movement. Sometimes it's called the Discipling Movement. Sometimes it's called the Crossroads Movement. Those are all talking about the same thing. Eventually, Kip McKean repented. He stepped down. Then he decided he wanted to come back. They said no. They disfellowshipped him. And in 2006, he founded a new group, and he called it the International Christian Church. What is wrong with the International Churches of Christ? One of the main things relates to its, uh, its governing system, its hierarchical structure. It's not consistent with the Bible. They have regional family churches that oversee geographic areas. And in the Bible, every church is autonomous. No church has authority over any other church. They use some di discipling techniques that aren't biblical. They were very sectarian in some of their approaches. And so what happens is you had a group in the Lord's church that started holding in error, and eventually they went off and became a denomination. And you know, any church of Christ could do that. We could start drifting from the truth to the point that the Lord doesn't recognize us as one of his churches at, at that time. All right, question number seven. Can, should, an individual Christian on his own practice the withdrawal of fellowship from someone else who is in sin? Let me give you an example of what this person's talking about because this was given to me verbally. A member of the church has another member, maybe a family member, who starts dabbling in sin. Maybe this family member who's a Christian, maybe they stop attending. Maybe they start drinking alcohol. Maybe they get in an unscriptural marriage. Maybe they're shacking up, living with whatever it is. They're living in some kind of sin. Can should that individual church member withdraw from them. I have known some Christians over the years who believe that each person should practice the withdrawal of fellowship. I even know some preachers and Christians who teach and believe this. I do not believe that the Bible teaches this. Let me tell you why. If you look at the pattern for the withdrawal of fellowship that's laid out in several places in the Bible, one of them is in Matthew chapter 18. The Bible says, if your brother sinned against you, what do you do? First, you go to him alone. That is gossip control. If you can fix it between the two of you, do that. If he won't hear you, you're going to go with one or two. So that at the mouth of two or three, every word may be established. Again, you're trying to keep this small. If he won't hear them, then you tell it to the church. If he won't hear the church then the church is going to mark him, and he'll be as a heathen and a publican. In other words, you're going to withdraw fellowship. But the point is, the church takes this uh, action. It's a congregational activity. I, as an individual, don't start withdrawing from people. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you read about a man who had married his father's wife. He's in an unscriptural marriage. 1 Corinthians 5, 4, Paul says this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with the Spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. What that means is acknowledge that Satan's got him. He's left the faithful uh, following of the Lord. He's not walking in the light. Satan's got him. He says, 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But did you see what he says? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, the church comes together and makes this uh, a, a congregational activity. And so 1 Corinthians 5 tells me the church does that. Matthew 18 tells me the church does that. Number three, can you imagine the turmoil that would arise if each person individually started withdrawing fellowship from people? What you would have is one man would withdraw from somebody and other people would not withdraw from him and it would totally kill the effectiveness of that particular action. And imagine the diversity of standards that would be applied. Somebody would say, no, I don't think he should. Yes, I think he should. And it would just be a mess. Now, with that said... I do believe that as individuals, there are actions that we can and should take toward others who are in sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I have a family member who engages in homosexuality. Let's say that they even enter into a homosexual marriage. What if their parents say to that, their, their child, they say on the holidays, you can't come home and bring your homosexual partner. We're not having it. We are not going to participate. Or what about this? What if their child goes off and becomes a drug user? And what if they say, we're here for you. If you want to make your life right, then we're here. Until then, the ties are cut. We're not going to have a part of it. We won't endorse it. I think that would be a good thing and an appropriate thing. That's not the same thing that is taught in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and the withdrawal of fellowship. All right, question number eight. This one was actually turned in by someone who was watching on the internet, and we have a lot of people that watch regularly and that send questions to us uh, on the internet, and so several people um, do that. This question says, if a person has been homeless and just got off the street, or is a poor senior citizen and cannot afford to purchase a suit or a dress, can they go to church? Absolutely they can. Of course they can. James chapter 2 and verse 1, James said this, My brethren, there should come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and fine apparel, and there should come in one also who is a poor man and he has filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The point of that passage is this. Christians should not feel differently. They should not treat people differently because of different economic levels. I'm not going to look at a person who can afford fancier clothes and say, hey, you come sit over here by me and this less fortunate person, and say, yeah, you go over there. I don't want you there. He says, don't ever, ever let that happen. And the point is, it was happening in the Lord's church in the first century, and that spirit is something that has been battled ever since then. A person should never let the fact that he can't afford a suit or she can't afford a dress keep them from attending. Now, with that said... Sometimes people have gone to James chapter 2. I would say they have misused James chapter 2 to teach that no effort whatsoever should be taken to try to dress respectfully when we worship God. They'll say there's nothing written that says we should dress respectfully. You know, it makes me think about the lesson we had last week about the ten lepers. 
You remember that one came back and thanked Jesus for what he had done. Jesus didn't say you had to come back. There was nothing stated that said you had to come back. That was not recorded anywhere. But the Lord expected it to happen. And the Lord notices when we don't show reverence and when we don't express gratitude. God expects gratitude. He expects outward displays of respect. You know, in our society, at least in years past, when I was growing up, if you would walk into a building and you had a hat on, they would always say, take your hat off in the building. That's disrespectful. If you came into a church building, you had your hat on, they would say, take that off. That's disrespectful. I don't know if it's still considered that way or not. Is that? I don't know what it is now, but it used to be you wore a hat into a church building. They would say, take it off. Why? There's no verse in the Bible that says you can't wear your hat in the building. It had to do with the fact that in our society, that showed disrespect. Don't do that. That shows disrespect. Let me give you a biblical example of this. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Bible taught that women who lived in Corinth were to wear a head covering, a veil, when they came to worship. Why were they supposed to wear a veil? There is no verse in the Bible that said women had to wear veils to worship. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says there is no such thing bound upon the church universally. There's there's no such law. So why did he tell them that they had to do it? The reason he told them that they had to do it was because of a societal implication. In that culture, it communicated something. And Christians need to follow principles of respect and reverence and honor in our society, especially as we come before God. Now, when you come to worship the Lord, you want to be respectful in what you have. Now, somebody might say, well, what if the the most respectful thing that I have would be, you know, the clothes they gave me at the homeless shelter? Then God is well pleased with that. Nothing in the world wrong with that. And everybody else better be well pleased with that too. Because if God is, we better be. The point is, the fact that we don't respect rich people over poor people does not mean that we should not try to dress reverently as we present ourselves before God. Question number nine. If a couple got married and they said their vows to God, but they realized shortly after that they had made a huge mistake. They had not consummated the marriage, and so they decide to have it annulled. Does God still recognize that marriage, and is the divorce considered unscriptural? Let me make a clarification. It says you have it annulled, and then it refers to it as a divorce. An annulment and a divorce are technically two different things. They're treated the same, the end result is the same, but an annulment basically says this never existed in the first place. It wasn't valid, we don't recognize it, it's gone. A divorce says it was there, but it's being dissolved, and so we're bringing it to an end. So technically, they are two different things. All right, the question is, if these two individuals, they get married and they say we made a mistake, but they had not consummated it. In other words, they had not uh, been together sexually. Can they say, we're just going to wash our hands and undo it? Will God be okay with that? No, he will not. This idea of an annulment is not scriptural. It is not found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, I did a Google search to see if I could find the concept of annulment 
The first time in history that I could ever find it was in the Roman Catholic Church in 1498. Pope Alexander granted an annulment to Louis XII so that he could be married to Anne of Brittany. That is, he said, I want to be married to another woman. Can you fix this? Can you get rid of my current marriage? And the Pope said, okay, let's, it's gone, it's annulled, and it has been that way ever since. Sometimes I've heard Christians appeal to this and say, we haven't consummated it yet. The Bible has no such concept as that. Annulment is something that came along through the Roman Catholic Church. That's the history of it. It is not biblical. So what if a couple marries and they say, we made a mistake, we haven't consummated it, we're just going, we're going to get a divorce and go marry someone else. In the eyes of God, they're still married. And if they marry someone else, they are committing adultery. That's Matthew 19.9. All right, number 10. I'll make this the last one. It is commonly accepted that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. But did he actually write Deuteronomy 34, where it talks about his death and his burial and the people mourning for him? It is commonly believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Matthew 19 and verse 8, Jesus specifically says book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9 specifically says that Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy. But when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 34, you've got a record about Moses' death. And the question is, how could Moses have written about his own death and the things that happened after his death? And so did somebody else write it? The first thing I would say is, it's entirely possible that God inspired Moses to write it. There's no problem with that. In fact, when you read the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, the Pentateuch, you find Moses writing about a lot of things that happened after his death. He writes about Israel's future kings, and he writes about the coming of the Messiah. And so God, by inspiration, gave him that knowledge. Could God have inspired him to write about his own death? Absolutely. It could also be that though Moses wrote the Pentateuch, that the last few sentences could have been written by another inspired author, such as Joshua. J.W. McGarvey, who was a great scholar in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he wrote an entire book on who is the author of the book of Deuteronomy. In 1902, he wrote this, the account of the death of Moses and some of the comments on his career undoubtedly came from the pen of some later writer or writers. McGarvey is certainly not the Lord, but he said it could be, maybe Joshua wrote it. That's a common belief. The fact is the Bible doesn't tell us. What we know is it is inspired of God. Okay, I'll stop there for tonight. Thank you for the good questions. I have just a few left, and so if you want to give me some more questions, I would appreciate that very much. If you're here tonight and you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we always want to give you an opportunity. If you're here tonight and you want to become a Christian, the Bible teaches you can do that by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. If you want to do that tonight, we are ready to assist you. Maybe you're a Christian and you desire the prayers of your brethren, maybe for things going on in your life, maybe because of sin in your life that you want to deal with publicly, we would be honored if we could go to God on your behalf. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.